You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 256, The Battle of Hanging Rock. Last time we went over several skirmishes in both North and South Carolina, the British under General Cornwallis claimed to have taken all of South Carolina and had demanded that all colonists, even Patriot militia who had been released on parole, join the Loyalist militia forces or be treated as traitors. Cornwallis had deployed Major Patrick Ferguson to the backcountry, where he was tasked with organizing regiments of Patriot militia. Ferguson used Fort 96 as his base of operations and as a POW camp for Patriots who refused to cooperate. Further to the north, Colonel Bannister Tarleton used his Loyalist cavalry, mostly raised among Loyalists from New York and Philadelphia, to compel obedience to British edicts and punish anyone who refused to comply. Also, a few episodes back, I gave some background on two local leaders who emerged at this time. Colonel Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, was a Continental officer who was not in Charleston when it fell to the British. General Thomas Sumter, the Gamecock, had given up participation in the war, only to be drawn back after British forces targeted him and burned his plantation. By July of 1780, Marion had brought his men into North Carolina to supplement the forces being organized by Continental General Johann de Kalb. Sumter, however, remained in South Carolina, trying to avoid attacks on his small outfit, but striking at smaller encampments of British or Loyalists when the opportunity presented itself. As I noted in an earlier episode, most of the skirmishing in this time in this area was relatively disorganized and involved only a few dozen men on each side. The British were trying to cover the entire state with only a few thousand men, and the Patriots had surrendered almost all organized forces in the state when Charleston had fallen in May. One of the larger skirmishes in early August happened at Green Spring. There seems to be some dispute over the date of the attack, some saying August 1st, others saying August 8th. British Major Patrick Ferguson was out in the field commanding an army of hundreds of Loyalists whom he had raised locally he received word that a regiment of rebel militia under the command of Georgia Colonel Elijah Clark was camped nearby. Elijah Clark lived on the Georgia frontier when the war began, but he'd grown up in North Carolina. He led soldiers against the Loyalists at Kettle Creek in 1779, shortly after the British captured Savannah. He had assumed command of this group after Loyalists attacked the home of his regimental commander and killed him, Colonel John Dooley. Clark had been upset that South Carolina militia had accepted parole and dropped out of the fight after the British captured Charleston. 
he took his force of about 140 Georgia militia into South Carolina to continue the fight against the British. After General Clinton's proclamation forced parolees in South Carolina to take up arms again, either as loyalists or patriots, Clark found many in South Carolina were willing to join up with his Georgians. Ferguson deployed over 200 loyalist militia to attack Elijah Clark's camp in a pre-dawn raid. The loyalists had camped for the night on the plantation of Patriot Captain James Dillard, who was with the Patriot force at this time. Dillard's wife, Mary, served dinner to the British officers and overheard that they intended to attack her husband's camp early the following morning. Mrs. Dillard managed to steal away on a horse and warn the Patriot camp of the imminent attack. The Loyalists had about 210 men assigned to the attack, while the Patriot force was believed to be only 196 men. Although this was a pretty evenly matched force, the Loyalists hoped to catch their prey while they were still asleep, so they didn't necessarily need overwhelming numbers to ensure success. However, when they arrived at the camp, the enemy was lined up and ready for them, unleashing a volley on the surprised attackers. The attack lasted about 15 minutes before the attackers realized this was not going to be the massacre they had hoped, and they withdrew with heavy losses. There's no record of the exact casualty numbers, but the Patriots considered it a success. Colonel Sumter continued his organization efforts while trying to undermine the enemy's efforts to do the same. In late July, Sumter wrote to Continental General Johann de Kalb in North Carolina, providing the general with the positions of Loyalist forces in South Carolina, totaling the enemy at about 3,500 men. He also warned de Kalb that Cornwallis was getting ready to concentrate his forces at Camden, and recommended that the Kalb strike first before the enemy could gather there. DeKalb, however, opted to wait as he had received word a few days prior that he was going to turn over military command to a new general, Horatio Gates. In the meantime, Sumter was looking for outposts within South Carolina that he could target with his smaller force. He found just such a target at a place called Rocky Mount. There, an outpost of about 300 loyalists, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel George Turnbull, looked to be an inviting target for a Patriot attack. The commander was a British officer who had retired as a captain and moved to New York shortly before the war began. In January of 1776, Turnbull had raised a regiment of New York loyalists and soon received a commission as a lieutenant colonel. His men saw action in several campaigns in the north before sailing south to participate in the capture of Savannah in late 1778. He spent over a year in Georgia, gaining experience and dealing with rebel guerrilla units. After the British captured Charleston, Turnbull was deployed into South Carolina in the backcountry to help subdue the rebel elements there. He had established his headquarters at Rocky Mount, near the North Carolina border, just south of Charlotte. There, Turnbull had built a fort of sorts, mostly two cabins on top of a hill surrounded by Abatee. General Sumter had gathered a force of a between, I don't know, five or six hundred militia, which he hoped would be enough to overrun the garrison. Sumter deployed another force of dragoons to attack a nearby smaller outpost as a diversion, while he brought his larger force against Rocky Mount. Sumter gave the command of the diversionary force to Major William Davy. Davy's job was to attack a larger enemy outpost 
about 15 miles from Rocky Mount, at a place called Hanging Rock. The larger Loyalist outpost there consisted of about 500 men and was only going to be attacked by about 40 dragoons and riflemen. The goal was not to take that position, but to occupy the defenders there in order to prevent them from coming to the aid of the smaller garrison at Rocky Mount. Once he arrived at Hanging Rock, though, Davy noted that there was a smaller group of three companies of Loyalists who were outside the main encampment. Since both Davy's Patriot Militia and the enemy Loyalist Militia were both dressed in civilian clothes, Davy simply had his men ride into the camp past the sentries as if they belonged there. Then, suddenly, they opened fire. When the Loyalists ran from the field, Davy had predicted where they would run and had sent another detachment to fire on the fleeing Loyalists. Before the main encampment could mount a counterattack, Davy's Patriot Militia mounted their horses, along with taking another 60 horses of the enemy, and rode back to support Sumter in his larger attack on Rocky Mount the following day, July 31st. Sumter had no artillery, but he thought that his rifles could penetrate the wooden walls of the building where the enemy was located. The British commander, however, had reinforced the walls with clay to make them essentially bulletproof. Sumter called on the enemy to surrender, but they refused. The Patriots mounted three attacks to break through the abbey. The defenders inflicted casualties and drove back the attackers each time. Sumter then instructed a couple of volunteers to climb atop a large boulder near the houses and throw firebrands onto the roofs to set them on fire. The Loyalist defenders sent out a company of men with bayonets to drive off these volunteers before they could set fire to the houses. Sumter then tried to send the volunteers back again, reinforced with a company of riflemen, and this time the men finally managed to set the houses on fire. As things were looking bleak for the defenders, a rainstorm suddenly opened up and doused out the flames. So, after eight hours of attempting to take the defenses, Sumter withdrew. The defenders reported two officers and ten men killed or wounded. Sumter reported only three killed and six wounded, along with two captured. Now, on a hearing that the outpost at Rocky Mount was under attack, the British deployed relief forces to assist them. And while none of the relief columns arrived in time for the battle, they did encounter Sumter's retreating militia, and this resulted in even more skirmishing, in which Sumter claimed to have lost 20 men but also killed 60 of the enemy. A few days later, Sumter decided to try his luck directly against the larger outpost at Hanging Rock. Major Davy had reported that the defenses there were not really great, and that with some surprise, they could overrun the enemy encampment. So, Sumter's militia did just that. On August 6th, Sumter's militia surprised the British at Hanging Rock and captured the encampment the Loyalists either fled into the woods or were captured trying to make a stand against overwhelming numbers. The fighting was over rather quickly, and the victorious militia offered parole to the Loyalist officers and removed the Loyalist soldiers to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they would be held as prisoners of war. The victorious militia then looted the camp, and finding a sizable stash of liquor, the men started drinking heavily. In the meantime, a detachment of Tarleton's cavalry came within sight of the camp. They were only a small number, and their commander, Colonel Tarleton, was not with them, so they didn't attack. 
Sumter, however, decided it was time to go and withdrew his men from the camp. The result of the attack was about 25 loyalists killed, another 175 wounded, and 73 captured. The Americans lost only 20 killed and 40 wounded. After the attack, the British did not try to reoccupy the camp, even though the Americans had fled the area. Sumter's raids were taking a toll on British attempts to pacify the region. The success of the raids told South Carolinians that the British did not really control the region and that things were still in contention. Those who favored the cause of independence, but who had begun to feel like it had become inevitable that British colonial rule would be restored, could still hold out hope that the Patriot militia might prevail. This impacted British efforts to recruit more Loyalist militia. The British commander in the region, Major Patrick Ferguson, knew that he would have to crush this growing threat before it grew larger. Ferguson took his forces into the field, hoping to find and defeat the rebel militia once and for all. Sumter's militia was further north of his headquarters at Fort 96, and his immediate problem was the growing force of militia under the joint command of Colonel Elijah Clark of Georgia, whom I already mentioned, and Colonel Isaac Shelby of North Carolina. In the last episode, I talked about a raid where Ferguson had attempted to capture some local militia at Cedar Spring, and that militia, tipped off to the raid, managed to defeat the attacking Loyalists. Such victories encouraged more men to join Colonel Clark. And after Clark joined up with Shelby, and the two men worked together to take on even more recruits, these officers had built a much larger force that consisted of men from Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina militia, and it had grown to over a thousand men by early August. This group began shadowing Ferguson's Loyalist army, looking for opportunities to strike the other. On August 7th, Ferguson's Loyalists were almost on top of Colonel Clark's Patriots. The Loyalists attempted a pre-dawn raid, but Clark received word and evacuated his camp before they arrived around 4 a.m. One of Clark's officers, Colonel Josiah Culbertson, had been out on a scouting mission. He returned to camp, not realizing that the Patriots had fled and that the men milling around the camp that morning were Loyalists. After realizing his situation, Culbertson simply rode through the camp. The Loyalists assumed he was one of them and ignored him. After looking around and gaining intelligence on the enemy numbers, Colbert just kept on riding out of camp and went to find his own army near Wofford's Ironworks. While Culbertson was making his escape, Ferguson learned that the enemy supply wagons were only a few miles away, so he sent a division of 130 Loyalists under Captain James Dunlop to capture them. Colonel Clark personally led a Patriot ambush, which decimated the Loyalists. Colonel Clark received two saber wounds during the skirmish and was captured by the Loyalists, but then he managed to knock down one of his captors and simply run away. The Patriots managed to capture about 50 Loyalist prisoners during this encounter as well. Dunlop managed to make it back to the main Loyalist camp. Ferguson then assembled a larger attack force to capture the enemy, but by the time they arrived back at Wofford's Ironworks, the Patriots had withdrawn into the hills. Patriots taunted the enemy, trying to get them to attack into the hills where the Patriots would have held the high ground, but the Loyalists did not attempt such a dangerous maneuver. Just over a week later, Sumter's militia struck again, this time at Watery Ferry. 
The British had built a redoubt named Fort Carey near the ford. Colonel Sumter had got word that a British supply train was crossing the ferry, so he dispatched about 300 militia to capture those wagons. They were joined by about 100 Continentals. The force of several hundred overwhelmed Fort Carey, capturing the commander, Colonel James Carey, and his garrison of about 30 Loyalists. They also captured 36 wagons full of supplies. As the Patriots were still organizing their prizes, another British train of 56 wagons with even more supplies and baggage, as well as 70 wounded British soldiers and a herd of cattle, also attempted to cross the ferry. The Patriots captured the even larger prize as well. Initially, Sumter wanted to hold the ferry, but after hearing of the American loss at Camden, he moved his army and prisoners further north. Now, since I just mentioned the Battle of Camden, which was a major battle, you might infer that we are going to get to that really soon, and I do want to get to it in a few episodes from now. But before we get to that, I do have a couple of other things to cover. So before we leave today, I want to talk about one other event that happened about this same time, but thousands of miles away from the Carolinas. At the beginning of August, a large merchant fleet left Portsmouth, England, headed for the West Indies. The fleet of 63 merchant vessels contained massive amounts of food, clothing, ammunition, all sorts of things that the armies were going to need, as well as several regiments of infantry who were going to be deployed to the West Indies. The merchants were escorted out of the English Channel by the Channel Fleet, and once they got out into the Atlantic, the Channel Fleet allowed them to continue on their own, escorted by a single ship of the line and two frigates. Officials in London believed that sending their supply ships over in a large convoy protected by a ship of the line would protect them from the privateer ships that were becoming an ever-increasing problem for these supply ships. There were not just privateers, though, in the Atlantic. The Spanish fleet was also out there looking to do battle. On the evening of August 8th, Spanish frigates spotted some unknown sails. The Spanish sailors weren't sure if they would encounter the British Channel Fleet or whether this was a merchant convoy. The Spanish commander, José de Mazaredo, believed that it was a merchant fleet and threw everything he had at the target. Captain John Maltray, who commanded the Ramillies, the one ship of the line for the British who was escorting this fleet, also saw the enemy sails. His ships could fight off a few privateers, but they were no match for an enemy fleet. The British might be able to outrun their pursuers, so Maltry signaled all the ships to alter course and follow him into the wind in order to maximize speed. The two Navy frigates and eight of the merchant ships followed him. Those ships were able to slip away from the Spanish. Since the ships received this signal at night, though, a lot of them got confused. The British commander, Maltry, put a signal lantern on his ship for the fleet to follow. However, the Spanish saw that signal light, and they put out a signal of their own. They got the rest of the fleet to follow them. So they led the merchant ships right back into the middle of the Spanish ships of the line. By morning, the British merchants found themselves intermingled with the entire Spanish navy. Almost all the British ships surrendered without a shot fired. A few tried to make a run for it, but Spanish cannons quickly convinced them to strike their colors and surrender. The Spanish led 55 captured prizes back to Cadiz. Not only did the Spanish manage to capture over 3,000 soldiers and sailors, 
they converted many of these captured ships into new Spanish naval vessels. The captured supplies, which had been intended to supply British forces in West Indies for the rest of the year, were all lost to the enemy. The loss felt in London was a massive one. It was the largest single loss for the British East India Company in the entire history of its existence. Many marine insurance companies went bankrupt as a result of the incident, and already high insurance rates for British merchant ships just went through the roof. It was a devastating blow for British logistics. I just wanted to mention that because even though the capture of supply ships, even a lot of them, usually doesn't make the history, these things really do have an impact on the battlefield and the ability of armies to go on the offensive or even maintain the defensive in the coming months. Next week, though, we're going to head further north where the British suffer a less surprising blow when the French army arrives in America. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Lee Seam and Michael Mulhern. I'm also pleased to welcome two new sponsors at the Privy Council level this month, Anthony McGinnis and Bob Krieger. Thanks also to Rusty Bramlett, John Ballinger, Joseph Omalas, and Gail Sarah for a second time for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. You may have heard that I'm headed to Louisville this month to serve as a moderator for several discussions on issues related to the origins of the Constitution. Now, it turns out that that event is no longer going to take place in Louisville, but is going to be fully online. So if anyone wants to participate in this event via Zoom, I can offer you free access to the event. You can learn more about the event at nathanspapers.com. You can also go to Eventbrite to get your free tickets. Just use the code AMREVPOD to access a free Zoom link. I'm also hosting another event in Mount Holly, New Jersey with the American Revolution Roundtable, 
where we will have a discussion hosted by an expert on Major Patrick Ferguson, who's somebody I was talking about in today's episode. That event will also be simulcast live on Zoom, so if you want a link for that, I can get you a connection to that as well. I usually put links to upcoming events on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com, but really the best way to stay up to speed on all these things is to be on my mailing list. I only send out emails once or twice a month, covers these upcoming events and other things that I think may be of interest to you. I'm not going to fill up your inbox. I'm not going to send your email address to anyone else. So if you're interested in getting on my mailing list, please go to my website. You'll see a link there to go to MailChimp, sign up, and you will get my emails. Of course, you can stop at any time. In this week's episode, I mentioned Georgia Colonel Elijah Clark. He was one of the key patriot leaders in South Carolina at this time. You'll notice during my main episode, I usually try to give at least a very short summary of the person's background, uh, but that only covers, of course, the life up until the point that I'm talking about. Sometimes these people have very interesting lives after the war, and like right now, I'm going to mention in the after show what happened to Mr. Clark. After the war, he served in the state assembly, and he went on to the Constitutional Convention in 1789. In my mind, this classifies him as a founding father. I actually got into a debate with someone the other day about what it actually takes to be considered a founding father. It is a vague term, and everyone uses it differently. I argued that it should at least include everyone who's signed either the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution. By that measure, at least, Clark makes the cut. During the French Revolution, Clark's career takes an interesting turn. He took a commission as a major general in the French army, but he remained in America where he assisted Citizen Genet's efforts during the French Revolution to capture Florida on behalf of France. After President Washington scuttled that effort, Clark then attempted to create his own republic in the West in what is, at the time, Creek Territory. Once again, President Washington blocked his efforts when the federal government forced Georgia to put an end to the attempted creation of a new state. In the end, Clark would die in poverty in 1799, but years after his death, his son John Clark became governor of Georgia. My book recommendation this week is From Savannah to Yorktown, The American Revolution in the South by Henry Lumpkin. As you might guess from the title, it covers the Southern Campaign during the last two or three years of the war. I recommended a similar book last week, but that one only went through Guilford Courthouse, when the war left the Carolinas. This one also covers the fighting in Virginia that happens after the fighting in the Carolinas and that eventually led to the final major battle of the war at Yorktown, Virginia. The main part of this book is only about 250 pages. Beyond that, there's another 100 pages, which include not only the traditional bibliography and index, but a great chronology of events and a summary of all the skirmishes during this time period. It can be a great help if, for example, you're trying to make a podcast that covers all these event details. The author, Henry Lumpkin, was a military historian for the U.S. European Command and for the Naval Academy. After that, he was a history professor at the University of South Carolina. He first published his book in 1981, 
And as always, I've included a link to the book on Amazon and also where you can borrow it for free on archive.org. If it sounds interesting to you, please check out From Savannah to Yorktown. My online recommendation this week is The History of the Revolution of South Carolina from a British Province to an Independent State, 1749 to 1815, Volume 2 by David Ramsey. This is an interesting narrative of events in, you might guess, the Revolution of South Carolina. The book itself is over 700 pages long, which means it gets into a lot of details. What I find most unique about this book, though, is that it was first published in 1785, and the author actually served in the Continental Congress and was also a military surgeon during the Carolina campaigns. He was a contemporary of these events, and he watched them unfold himself. This is not a perspective that we often have. The History of the Revolution in South Carolina is available on archive.org, and as always, I've included direct links on my blog and website. Now, my question this week comes from listener Greg Lewin, who read an article citing Thomas Slaughter's assertion that, quote, at no time did more than 45% of colonists support the war, and at least a third of the colonists fought for the British. He asks, quote, I found this interesting, as I'm assuming there were no polls taken at the time. How would such a specific figure of 45% be arrived at? Through your research, or even through your opinion, is there a generally accepted percentage of the population that was pro-independence? Of course, I believe the population's opinions fluctuated throughout this period, but to state at no time was there a majority of supporters seems unlikely. Well, Craig, you're correct. There were no polls taken during the Revolution. Beyond that, since expressing your true views could get you imprisoned or expelled from your home colony or your property seized by the state, many people did not feel free to express their true views on the war or the issue of independence. I looked up Professor Slaughter's assertion in his book, which is called Independence, The Tangled Roots of the American Revolution. The book doesn't include any footnotes or citations, so I can't say exactly where Professor Slaughter got his conclusion based on the book. Also, in the context of his book, when he says, at no time, he was referring to the early war period between 1775 and 1778. So, in the later years of the war, when it looked like the Americans were going to win, public opinion may have changed considerably in favor of independence. I also reached out to Professor Slaughter, who did respond to my email. He said the 45% statistic was not meant to be an exact number. He had read estimates that indicate a range of support from about one-third of the population to just under one-half, but that he did not think it ever reached a majority of the population. So he picked 45% mostly as a number that was just under a majority. While I'm on the subject of popular opinion during the war, this gives me another opportunity to address another myth, not one that Greg brought up, but one that I've heard before, which is that John Adams judged that one-third of the country was pro-independence, one-third loyalist, and one-third lukewarm, and that final third would follow whichever they thought was the probable winner. The source of that actually comes from an 1815 letter in which Adams was discussing American support for Britain versus France during the war that took place in the 1790s. The truth is we have no solid statistics for the question of popular support for independence during the American Revolution. 
we do know that people of the colonies were divided on the issue and that there was not a clear or overwhelming majority that backed independence until the war was almost over and it was clear that the forces of independence were going to win. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.